Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Stroller, by Margaret St. Clair. This was first published in Thrilling Wonder Stories for August 1947, uh, a very early Margaret St. Clair story. Uh, we've done seven previously, uh, so this will be our eighth, and uh, she's one of the discoveries I made with you, Eric, on this podcast, because I hadn't read any Margaret St. Clair prior, and now uh, any chance I get to read a Margaret St. Clair is just a... It's a great day, usually. Like It's like, oh, good, another Margaret St. Clair. Um, she turned out um, between 1946 and 1962, which is sort of the period I'm more interested in, because those will be the public domain ones, um, uh, 99 stories. Wow. Right? Wow. I, I, I just uh, recently, uh, having been asked to do this by a friend, read a Louis L'Amour novel. Oh, yeah. Uh, in gen- general, I am uh, not keen on um, stuff that, that seems to be so deeply rooted in genre, but uh, the fact is that there are some people who write in genre. Mm-hmm. That is, they say, I know what the requirements are for this kind of story, and it looks easy. It looks like you don't have to be an educated reader to enjoy it, and you don't. And yet, the more you attend to it, the more you realize how deep it really goes, mm. the real talent and sensitivity of some of these people. Um, Margaret St. Clair is often a writer like that, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Whether or not she is in this story, um, we'll get to discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, it is just short enough for us to read, so if you wouldn't mind doing so, uh, maybe we can discuss its general implications for the rest of reality. <laughs> the Stroller. All sorts of things come in on a space freighter. Even in the old days, grocers were always finding 20-foot pythons curled cozily inside bunches of bananas from South America. And what sort of undesired stowaways do you suppose you get when you have a cargo of tongaroos from South Venus, agatized phyllocorums from the district around um, Aphrodition, hand-painted lumographs on gore fiber made in Marsport Prefecture and golden rinks jewelry from the canal centers. George Saunders, supercargo of the SS Trito, gave his wife a warm kiss on the cheek. For Pete's sake, he hissed into her ear, act like you're glad to see me, can't you? The old man's watching us. Marta Saunders hesitated a moment and then threw her plump body into her husband's arms. Ooh, Georgie, she squealed. You sweet old thing. It's so wonderful to see you again. That's enough. George rumbled warningly. He swayed a little from the impact. Don't want to overdo it. Let's get out of here. They started over to the parking area of the spaceport where their copter was. 
What's the matter? Marta demanded as soon as they were out of earshot of the ship. What do you care what the captain thinks about us? Listen, Marta, the old fool's been writing me ever since we left Aphrodition. Says I'm the most incompetent supercargo he's ever had. Just before we docked today, he said he thought he'd take it up with the union. If he does, you know what'll happen. Pink said the last time that if he got more and more complaint about me, he'd take the case to the executive board. I'd lose my license, sure. Oh, Marta seemed unwillingly impressed. She got an atomizer out of her hand case and began spraying quick-drying Cosmolac over the skin of her face and neck. But what happened, she asked an instant later when the cosmetic had set. Why is he so down on you? For a moment, the fine-etched lines of irritation and petulance faded from George Saunders' face to be replaced by an expression of honest perplexity. Marta, I... Wait, here's the copter. I'll tell you about it after we get in. And for the love of heaven, don't drop any pop bottles out of the window the way you did the last time I was in the port. Having the air police after us would be the last straw as far as my nerves are concerned. He slid into the driver's seat. Marta got two bottles of pop out of the refrigerator, pulled straws, shoved straws into their necks, pulled a shelf out of the paneling to hold one bottle at a convenient level under George's nose and began drinking out of the other herself. Well, she asked after a couple of swallows. George drank from his bottle before applying. It's the darndest thing. I remember beginning to load number two and three holds at Aphrodition, and I remember telling the longshore leader man to have the hatch covers put on again when the holds were filled, but there are six or eight hours in there during the loading, I don't remember a single thing about. They're totally gone. Well, the way the ship handled at the takeoff from Aphrodite, the old man thought there must be something wrong. And when and when we were out in space, he went in for a look. Wow, I can see sort of why he saw it. Those holes look like somebody stirred the things in them up with a big stick. About a third of the cargo is ruined. The Tongaroos have leaked all over those blasted lumographs and... Well, the insurance company is going to raise blue murder, and the owners won't like it one little bit. George licked his thin lips. What I want to know, he burst out, is what happened to me. I must have told the longshoreman to load the holes like that, but when we were two days out of Venus, I asked Sparks. He's had a pre-medical course, and he saved up the tuition for medical school. To look me over, he gave me all the tests, dozens of them, and finally told me there wasn't a thing wrong with me, mentally or physically, except that I needed more rest. Rest, bourgeois. I've been sleeping 10 hours a night, and I wake up tired of the one I went to bed. Marta studied him. You do look sort of tired, she observed. Maybe you need some Vita Ray treatments. George ignored this comment. Of course, the old man's not such a bad guy. He said he never said anything about that time. I missed the ship at Marsport. You mean that time you were so drunk on Soma? One of the times? George gave an irritated shrug. Never mind that, he snapped. I mentioned it because I asked him to have dinner with us on Thursday, the day before we sail, and I want you to have a real old-fashioned home-cooked meal for him. Maybe I can soften him up, have something nice for him. None of this complete meal stuff out of the freezer. Have something good, out of cans. You mean like my canned crab and mushroom casserole? Uh-huh. Have that. And what's that dessert you make with the canned peaches and the soma? Peche flambe or something? He might like that. George set the copter down neatly on the roof of their apartment house. 
Remember, he said, I've got to make a good impression on him. Flatter him as much as you can, but use your head about it. And if you get any kind of chance to tell him about how reliable I usually am, do it. The days moved on toward Thursday. George continued to complain of fatigue, and on Tuesday night, Marta woke up shrieking with a vague and horrible nightmare, but it was attributed to indigestion. After a dose of antacids, she went back to sleep. On Wednesday, she had her hallucination. She was putting a bunch of old digests and tabloids away in the closet in the living room. When she came across the jacket George had used four or five years ago when he went grotch hunting. George, she called. Oh, George, can I throw your old gray jacket away? It's full of moth holes. What are you yelling at me for? George asked irritably from behind her. He had been sitting in the study, which was only about five feet distant from the closet, drinking Soma. I'm right here. Marta came out of the closet and stared at him. One hand went to her heart. The pallor of her heavy, sagging face showed through her thick face lacquer as a muddy gray. Well, I, I, I saw you go into the kitchen, she said. You were wearing your brown suit. I was looking right at you, and you walked the length of the living room and went into the kitchen and closed the door behind you. That's why I yelled at you. You were wearing your brown suit. You've got the blue one on now. You were wearing the brown suit. Shut up, George said passionately. Are you trying to drive me crazy? I've been sitting right here all the time. What do you mean you saw me walk into the kitchen? You couldn't have. I've been sitting right here all the time. But I saw you. You were wearing your brown suit. You imagined it, her husband shrieked at her. It's your imagination. You shut up. What are you trying to do? Get me so nervous the old man will think I'm ready for the loony bin? You imagined it. Marta looked at him. She had to lick her lips twice before she could answer. Yes. Y yes, of course. That, that must be it. I imagined it. George spent the rest of the day drinking Soma. And holding his hands up before his eyes to see if they had stopped shaking, Marta got a five-suit deck of cards out of the closet and played solitaire. None of her games came out, but she was too distraught to realize that she had left two of the cards inside their box. Surprisingly, both George and Marta slept well. They awakened far more cheerful than they had been the night before. Even their pre-breakfast snapping at each other lacked its usual note of bitter sincerity. When Marta left the apartment and started out to do her shopping, she was humming under her breath. The canned crab was easy enough to locate, but she had to go to three stores before she could find the peaches and the mushrooms. She ran them to earth at last in a little grocery on a side street. Just as she was leaving it, her eyes caught the flash of a red label on a low shelf near the door, and she triumphantly dug out two cans of tomato soup. See what I got, she said, showing her prize to George when she got back home. I guess I'm lucky or something. It's awfully hard to find. Gosh, George shut off the video to give her his full attention. That's wonderful. I happen to know the old man's crazy about it. His mother used to have it all the time. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if it makes him change his mind completely about going to the union. Marta, you're a smart girl. Marta spent the rest of the day at the beauty shop getting her hair regarnished with galloons and her face set. She wanted to make the best possible impression on the captain. Around 5.30, she began getting dinner ready. It, wasn't, it doesn't take long to open cans. And an hour or so later, the old man, his name was Kaus, was chiming at the door. Kaus was definitely stiff at first. 
He greeted Saunders with resentful formality and gave Marta the merest flash of a smile before his face grew hard again. When the fragrant steam from the tureen of tomato soup Marta was bringing in blew toward him, he relaxed somewhat, and the salad of canned string beans, onions, lettuce, and mayonnaise softened him still more. By the time he had finished two big helpings of Marta's crab casserole, it began to look like the job was saved. He offered George a cigar and began telling him a long story about what the little Martian hostess at the Silver Wieteretti had said to him. Marta went out in the kitchen to fix the peche flambe. She cut the sponge cake into neat rounds, spread discs of hard-frozen banana ice cream over them, and crowned the structure on each dessert plate with half an enormous canned clingstone peach. From a bottle, she poured soma carefully over each of the peaches, set a bit of paper to burning by pressing it against the element in the atomic range, and then used the paper to ignite the soma on the peaches. George, she called in the direction of the dining apps. Oh, George, honey, help me with the plates. She heard him come in. She turned at his step, ready to pick up the plates, one in each hand, and give it to him. He was wearing his brown suit, but he was wearing the green one today, wasn't he? Because it was the best suit he had, and he wanted to impress the captain. His green, his green. George's face slipped down toward the fourth button of his coat. It wavered, solidified, flowed back into place, and then slopped down over his lapels once more. Suddenly, it solidified into a sort of tentacle. It came falteringly towards Marta, half blind but purposive. Marta tried to scream. Her throat was too constricted by terror to let out more than a mere thread of sound, but it had carrying power. George and Kaus, out in the dining apps, heard it. They came running in. Kaus was quick-witted. He picked up one of the plates with the soma burning on it and hurled it straight at the thing that was wearing George's clothes. There was an explosion so loud that the plexiglass in the windows bulged outward for a moment, and then a bright instant column of flame then nothing george's brown suit lay collapsed and empty on the floor it was wearing your suit george marta said hysterically she was leaning back against the wall looking faint and sick george it was wearing your suit oh what was it what was it anyway house was looking at the debris on the floor a peculiar expression half satisfaction half private insight hovered around the corners of his lips. It was a mocker, I think, he answered. A, a mocker? What? Uh-huh. You still find a few of them in the wilder parts of Venus. They're parasitic um, entities. They feed on the life force as well as the flesh of human beings. No doubt this one came aboard the ship at Aphrodition. In that consignment of Phaelicarum's, they're invisible most of the time, so of course we didn't suspect it. But how did it get here, George demanded. Why did it pick on Marta as a victim? Well, you see, the usual way a mocker works is to select someone as a host, as a sort of base of operations, and then range out from him whenever it wants to eat. For some reason, whenever it leaves its host, it takes on his features and body and dresses itself in his clothes. That's what happened here. One of the first signs that a mocker is taking hold is a spell of amnesia. And of course, that's what happened to you, Saunders, when you were taking on cargo at Aphrodition, though I didn't realize it at the time. 
A mocker doesn't usually kill its host directly, but it does draw on his life force to keep itself going, and it usually complains of feeling worn and tired. Cows halted. Marta looked down at her husband's brown suit and the ice cream slowly melting across it. Please, George, pick up that stuff before it ruins your suit completely, she said automatically. And then to Kaus, but what happened when you threw the plate at it? What happened? Oh, I was so scared. Yes, the mockers are terrifying, Kaus agreed. He seemed to square his broad shoulders. However, at bottom, they are unintelligent. Look at the stupidity of this one in attacking you when your husband and I were in the next room. And they are really not especially dangerous, provided you know the defense against them. You see, their body structure, while based on the same elements as our own, involves large quantities of free hydrogen between the body cells. Hydrogen ignites in ordinary air with explosive force, the end product's water. And when I threw that burning stuff at the creature, the hydrogen in its tissues exploded. It blew up. There's probably a great deal more water vapor in the air in this room than there was before I got rid of the thing. Kaus cleared his throat. There's another life form, he said, with a faintly professional air, allied to the mocker, but with important differences, which is far more dangerous. That's the stroller. The stroller? Marta asked. George had put his arm around her. They were not an affectionate couple, but the moment seemed to call for tender demonstration. Why do they call it that? No one knows exactly. It seems to come from the creature's own name for itself, for its fondness for taking long, long walks. Kaus turned the cigar in his mouth. He poked at the suit lying on the floor with the tip of his shoe. What does it do? Martha queried. Why is it so terribly dangerous? The stroller doesn't hunt a host like the mocker, Kaus replied. Early in life, it takes over the identity of some human being. And it remains indistinguishable from a human being to any usual test. It's so dangerous because there's absolutely no defense against it. No free hydrogen in its tissues. It's indestructible. My, Marta said, goodness. It feeds, like the mocker, on both the flesh and the life force of human beings. Fortunately, Cow smiled. It's very, very rare. There are probably only a few strollers in the entire solar system, and they reproduce only at widely separated intervals. Once more, Kaus halted and poked absently at the clothing on the floor with the toe of his boot. There's a peculiarity about their feeding habits, he said. They'll go for years without feeling any desire to eat their special food, and then Something will happen which makes them greedy. And after that, they can't be stopped before they feed. Goodness, Martha said again. She hid a nervous yawn behind her hand. George, get me a chair, will you? I'd like to sit down to Kaus. She said, how did you find out all these things? You must have made quite a study of the subject. Why, I've read several books about Venus, and I listened to all the casts on the video about it, but I never heard either of these creatures mentioned before. It seems to be a sort of hobby of yours. George pushed a kitchen chair out for her. She sat down with a sigh of relief. Not a hobby, Kaus corrected gently. His face began to waver and flow as the mockers had gone. Then it snapped back into place. 
He licked his lips very delicately. You see, I'm a stroller myself, and somehow I'm feeling that I'd like to eat. <laughs> All right. So um, this is uh, kind of similar to a couple of stories we've done by her. Uh, one is called Dreadful Dreamer, which is about a set on Mars, and it's about a, uh, uh, I think they were picnicking couple, or maybe they're surveying or panning for gold or something on Mars, and uh, they come across a, um, a, a creature, a cat, that can um, take on the shape of whatever you desire, and uh, it ends in fire. <laughs> And then uh, there's another one um, called Flowering Evil. Uh, that was in summer f 1950 planet stories. Um, and that one is about a nice lady who uh, is brought back strange things from one of her relatives, maybe her nephew, um, that she plants in their garden. And then it turns out to be a sort of a meat-eating plant. <laughs> she defeats it and they have it for dinner. Um, here... Um, we've got a, it has them for dinner. Yeah, it has them for dinner. So it's got an interesting <laughs> ending. But you know what struck me uh, so much about this story is actually all the work she does um, that is strictly unnecessary. I think for telling the plot. Um, and I just kept going over like, why is this all in here? And I, I don't know the answer, but I love it. So I want to just go through some of these things that she's done um so our our main character marta i think of her as the main character um she is described as uh uh her plump body that's the first time her body's described and then later her heavy sagging face so we're getting a picture of this lady um she uses a lot of household products and they have a lot of uh, mechanisms in their home um, she uses face lacquer called Cosmolac. She drinks soda pop. She suggests Viter rays to treat um, her husband's tiredness. They both drink Soma and put it on their food, which apparently is flammable. Uh, she has an anti-acid. Anti um, the husband um, suggests uh, she cook a home f cooked meal which is mostly canned food um mm -hmm. uh and not the complete meal the frozen i guess tv dinners we would call them or something um have something good out of cans he says um uh, the husband goes grotch hunting uh not in the story but we we're told this and uh she has a, f a five suit deck of cards so there's uh, oh their their um helicopter their personal helicopter has a refrigerator in it uh which has pop can uh, pop bottles in it and uh, in the past she uh, had thrown a pop bottle out the window or pop can out the window i guess presumably breaking on the tarmac or whatever uh and the cops had come after them so uh, this is ex very exclusively set in the future and uh oh the husband watches video um, and uh, he he turns it off when she comes in, and then she says that um, she learned about uh, a lot of things on the casts on the video. 
So it's like podcasts. Like she is doing a, a whole lot of work to set this in a future, future, future technology, future world. But she's also saying like it's all horrible. Like their 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 apartment. Um, yeah, they have a helicopter, um, and they don't seem to be very involved in the the movement from one place to the other. Maybe they just get it and it automatically goes there. Um, they they don't have a breakfast uh, or uh, they don't have a dining room. They have a an apps, which is a word I didn't know. A dining apps, and it's basically I guess a nook. Their apartment seems pretty small. So this is a super dystopian world, but that's not the focus of the story. And I, I was like, why did she do all this work? And I don't know the Are answer. You asking? Yeah, you have no idea the answer. What do you think, Eric? Well. <clears throat> It's one of those stories, I think, that that goes down easily, but then we need to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Soma is uh, the uh, pleasure drug that's given out freely in Brave New World Mm -hmm. to keep the masses pacified. Right. And it turns out that in this story, Soma is uh, not only a pleasure drug, it is like whiskey, alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's flammable. Mm -hmm. Um, And the word Soma comes up seven times in this story. That's, that's an, it's used a lot. She uses it. He uses it. There's an awful lot of people being pacified. I, in a way, Soma clouds your mind. So Mm -hmm. does drunkenness. And that was George's problem. He was drunk. Right. He couldn't see what was in the hold because it had been covered. I would suggest that this story in many ways is one in which dissimulation is crucial. After all, the strollers dissimulate. They they don't they, they make themselves look like someone else. The the uh, the uh, what you call it? <laughs> right, the mocker dissimulates, makes themselves look like someone else. Mm-hmm. The the food isn't really food. Right. It's something else. The red label of the, the can, right? It tells you what's the, inside. The affection between George and Marta is a dissimulation right. in order to keep his job. Uh, her cosmetics are to freeze her face so that it would look good. She is doing what the mocker and the stroller do. Right. Trying to maintain a certain kind of face. George and Marta connive to try to function in this world by each accepting the other's um, dissimulation. Mm. As soon as they get away, Marta changes her tone, and they speak to each other differently. When I saw the title, The Stroller, the thing that immediately came to mind is the collapsible buggy for pushing around children. Exactly. And I looked it up in the OED. The word stroller having that meaning rather than one who strolls um, has been in, in English, English and American English since 1920. The Sears, in fact, has strollers in its catalogs. Right. So by 1947, uh, and I know because I was born in 46 and I remember being in a stroller. I mean, <laughs> the word stroller because um, I do, weirdly enough, have memories that go back to when I was one. Um, the word stroller has that as its default meaning. Can't help but notice that George and Marta have no children. That's right. So they have no need for a stroller. The story sets us up to realize that something is going on in this 
this little family that isn't one, one what one would expect. Even the cargoes that are brought aboard are, in fact, dissimulating. They look like they're one thing, but they are something else. Even in any cargo, you might find something hidden. And we think we know what we've got. You know, what's a Tongaroo? Mm. But, you know, we don't know what we've got. This is a story, I think, that suggests if we only knew what was really in, in the world, it would be a whole lot more dangerous and, in fact, inimical to us mm. that our lives, the possibility of having children to put in strollers, our lives are dependent upon playing games. We have to make believe we love each other. Mm. We have to observe politeness. We have to make believe this canned stuff is real food. We have to make believe and make believe and make believe or something bad will happen. This is 1947. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that uh, we've just come out of an epoch in human history in which the real underlying terror of what human beings would do to each other has become inescapable. The concentration camps were discovered and suddenly the masks were down. Now we knew what could really happen. I think that the stroller is a story about the worst of human nature and how maybe, maybe we need to maintain politeness uh, because even in the old days, you could find a python and a bunch of bananas. Mm. You know, I, I I think of you as the food guy, because a long time ago you told me about the the food of the gods, and you suggested we do a show, uh, the H.G. Wells novel, um, you suggested we do a show on uh, SFF Audio podcast about food, and I'm like, food? As a science fiction topic, but you were right. It's it's really important. It's in there everywhere, and it's in here a lot. And what's what strikes me is so interesting about the world she's she's showing us in this story about a couple of aliens from Mars um, is that it uh, it's so reminiscent of the things we have today. She's fat, and. He uh, hates his work, but he has to uh, please his boss. He's got um, a drinking problem. Their apartment's too small. Maybe they can't afford kids. He's worried about losing his job. And everything they eat is disposable, comes in cans, frozen dinners. There's no real food. When he says a real home-cooked meal, he means... <laughs> Straight out of cans, right? And, oh, yeah. she had to work so hard to get the frozen frozen banana uh, ice cream. <laughs> and they're right. watching video. Um, and they're downloading casts. It doesn't say downloading, but it's like, this is our world. This is our world. And sh it's like she's paid attention to the trends. And I read the old magazines from the 40s, and I see all the ads for all these new fancy products and of course canned soup was you know a staple for, throughout the 20th century it still is in the 21st century but uh she's taken it that little bit farther than it would have been i think common 
in the 1940s, and she said, this is the future, and it, it looks so much like our future. It's or like our present. I mean, we don't have helicopters with refrigerators in them, but we do have refrigerators in any room we want them in, you know? And we have um, uh, cars that can practically drive themselves, and we have uh, all sorts of problems. Uh, it's so weird that she just decides to, like, she's decided that this couple is unhappy. They have a pre-breakfast uh, snapping at each other as the common thing. It's like, why did she do that? She's showing there's something wrong in their world. And you notice, picking up what you're saying about food, it's pre-breakfast. They're getting together mm -hmm. over food. Mm -hmm. They get into the helicopter. It's over food. Mm -hmm. They're worried about what's being imported. Some of it is food. Mm -hmm. right? They're worried about impressing the uh, captain of the ship. It's with food. Mm -hmm. um, again and again, it's about consumption. Is it any wonder that with human beings consuming everything on the planet, mm. that something from off the planet thinks it can consume us? Two somethings. It's it, it's it, it's funny because this story has a false ending, right? Like, oh, we're saved from this horrible mocker. Wait, the story's called the stroller. <laughs> and then we go exactly. a little bit longer. And it's like, how did you know about this? I didn't learn about that. Well, you know, I didn't study. Um, and what's funny is um, the 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 boss <laughs> who's going to eat them um, says uh, something will happen, and then the uh, stroller will get its desire for its preferred food. And we we actually spend a lot of time worrying about what the boss wants to eat, right? Yes. <laughs> Turns out the boss wants to eat the employees. And it's it, it's like, is this an attack on capitalism? <laughs> is it saying this is what we're doing to ourselves? This is what we're you know we're uh, we're doing to our employees? And it, it's a it's an it's a a false savings, right? They, they're saved at the end from from the mocker, and then eaten by the stroller. You know, you're doing. I, I love listening to this, Jesse. It's not just the capitalists that would eat us. It's the union right. that would, in fact, take their license. Right. That's right. It's both capital and labor. And the, the union rep who would do it is named Pinks. Right. When, when I got fired, no, I haven't been actually, but, you know, when people get fired, they get a pink slip. Yeah. The union rep is Pinks. The old man is the captain. There are things here about authority, social structure all mediated by the ability to make a living, which translates most specifically into food. Mm -hmm. But we live by eating somebody else. Um, I don't feel a whole lot of empathy for broccoli. But <laughs> on the other hand... It's delicious. Everything does, <laughs> yes, lives by eating something else. This story goes a long way to letting us know that even as we look around at a Jetson's future, mm. there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com 
forward slash SFF audio.